are listening to One Dime Radio. Become a patron at patreon.com slash one dime to support the show and get access to extra content. We think that ideology is something blurring, confusing our straight view. Ideology should be glasses which distort our view. And the critique of ideology should be the opposite, like you take off the glasses so that you can finally see the way things really are. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. Philosophers call someone a relative, by which they mean it's a person that holds that any view is as good as any other view. My simple response to that is this. No one holds that view. No one believes that every view is as good as every other view. Welcome to One Dime Radio. Today I am here with a very special guest, Daniel Tutt, to talk about Nietzsche, following up from our discussion of last week from the perspective of a left Nietzschean. Today we're going to discuss a more critical perspective of Nietzsche. Uh, Daniel Tutt has a book coming out in January called How to Read Like a Parasite which is about Nietzsche's broader impact on the left, some of its more negative impacts, and a more general critical look at Nietzsche, his historical circumstances in which he was writing, and a sort of critique of left Nietzscheanism, which is, was a big trend, especially in the so-called academic left. A lot of famous philosophers like Gilles Deleuze, uh, Georges Bataille, many thinkers were influenced by Nietzsche. And there's, you see a kind of dividing line between left Nietzscheans and Hegelian leftists. And I think it's, this is a very interesting point of discourse to uh, dive deep into. And uh, Daniel's a philosopher who has a book also that recently came out called Psychoanalysis and the Politics of the Family, which I would love to talk about another time. But without further ado, Daniel, what would, would you like to um, say about why you wrote this book and generally what you're, trying to, what you're trying to achieve with it? Because I think from there we can dive into the arguments. But I mean, first, I think it's important, maybe, I mean, why should we, why should we care about another critique of Nietzsche? Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Tony. Pleasure to be here. I was first seized by Nietzsche's philosophy coming from a kind of working class background, broken family, which of course you may remember I get into in the book. I, I absolutely take the philosopher Alain Bedjou's suggestion that Nietzsche is an anti-philosopher who collapses biography into philosophy. So thus, um, Nietzsche works outside of the academy. It's a great irony that Nietzsche is revered by liberal academics. He himself um, fuses biography with philosophy in ways which, of course, represent a kind of fascination for, for the past 120 plus years. So my book is a, is a question of reading methods. It's a, an acknowledgement that Nietzsche produces a cultural effect. There is something we can identify as Nietzscheanism, um, which is a type of romantic distance and critique of modernity and even of capitalism um, that is in Nietzsche's own words, um, sort of 
fueled by an arsenal of weapons for the ruling class, for the masters. This is Nietzsche's intention. And there is a kind of exoteric and an esoteric dimension of Nietzsche and Nietzscheanism, um, because Nietzsche wished to create and to enact a community of followers. And so even across the spectrum, uh, liberal, left or right Nietzscheans induct themselves into an esoteric community. It's a kind of spiritual hyphen political community, right? And therefore, Nietzscheanism cannot be separated from politics, and nor can it be separated from a critique of modernity, from slave morality. Slave morality is, of course, an almost trans-historical recurrence that, in particular, as a great reader of the burgeoning tradition of historiography in Tocqueville, Taine, and Burkhardt, Nietzsche, as a historian, as a philologist, um, is interesting, interested in diagnosing contemporary, modern slave morality, right? And therefore, that is a assault uh, of a critique onto capitalism in the world that we live in. So first argument that I make in the book is that we live in Nietzsche's world in some sense, that, that Nietzsche has performed a, a particular form of victory over our culture. And that, that victory is a kind of victory in certain domains of how we conceive of things like suffering, things like resentment, um, things like art and aesthetics, um, things like rank, order, hierarchy, etc., as well as, of course, liberation and freedom. Because you see, Nietzsche as a historical thinker, as a historical philosopher, is putting forward a hermeneutics of suspicion. But what is he suspicious of? He's suspicious of the long arc of the revolutionary tradition. He's suspicious of the long arc of the egalitarian tradition, which, of course, he locates in a kind of historical vortex that emerges from the egalitarian presuppositions that are implicit in Socrates. Judaism, Christianity, Cartesian rationalism, and modern socialism, and different forms of liberalism, but socialism in particular is the most insidious form, the most insidious instantiation of a kind of universal theory of the masses, of the herd, of herd mentality, that Nietzsche's concepts are designed to mitigate, to silence, and to mute. So my book is a proposal, yeah, that there is a kind of unity of Nietzsche, that he's not a decentered, rebellious philosopher. And that even when we invoke this notion of Nietzsche the rebel, we have to apply a class analysis to any understanding of Nietzsche and what standpoint or perspective Nietzsche wrote from. I take Nietzsche's presence. I, I agree with Petter Sloterdijk that he opens up a fifth gospel, right? That it will exist for the next 2,000 years, right? Which is, is itself a very interesting teleology. Like in Dmitry Safranov's new book on Nietzsche's political economy, that he makes the point that the 
semiology of Nietzschean concepts have a teleology implicit in them. Why? Because Nietzsche argued that he's creating a prophecy of the future. He's writing in a mode of address for an audience that he's seeking to invent to come. Which is why, of course, when Nietzsche becomes attached to the left, we immediately see that Nietzsche is trying to do something very close to what Marx and Engels are doing with the invention of the proletariat. Marx and Engels do not theorize the proletariat as some static lump entity that is just in factories. No, it's something that is to be invented, right? Nietzsche agrees. But of course, the outcome of Nietzsche's conception of the community that he's trying to build could not be more different than the outcome that Marx and Engels are after. And it is that blind spot, that dismissal of that difference between Marx and Nietzsche that the left, I think, has missed. And so my argument in How to Read Like a Parasite is that there actually exists a lineage of Marxist critiques of Nietzsche, beginning before Nietzsche died with Kurt Eisner, who was a, you know, Max Weber's famous notion of the charismatic personality. He was actually inspired by Kurt Eisner. Kurt Eisner was using a, med- a reading method of what I would call a parasitical reading method. What does that mean? It means that you read Nietzsche with an acknowledgement of the way that the aristocratic unity of his concepts have to be worked through in a psychoanalytic sense, worked through, not canceled, not denied, um, not laughed at, right? Because you could do that and that would be quite vulgar and that would only feed Nietzsche's power if you called him a fake bourgeois rebel. I'm not interested in that. I recognize that sociologically, the working class across Europe, often, and even after the Second World War in the kind of consumer capitalist era, the working class reads Nietzsche more than they do Marx, if we want to be quantitative about it. So what what use would it serve us to give this vulgar, and I'm not saying that it's Stalinist to give that vulgar thing, but perhaps it is, uh, this vulgar notion. No, he has to be worked through. So it starts with Kurt Eisner. It then transitions into the Bolsheviks. I have a whole section on the Bolsheviks, right? And how they fought Nietzscheanism, how they embraced and appropriated certain aspects of Nietzscheanism. Um, And how it plays out, of course, what I don't look at, which there's many texts that do look at this, is Nietzsche's influence on the right and on fascism, which, I mean, I've read a fair amount of those texts so we can discuss them. But what I'm particularly interested in is in the post-World War II milieu, both in France and America, there arises a reading method of what uh, Domenico Losurdo calls the hermeneutics of innocent. And this reading method, I think, has been deleterious. And I have some reasoning as to why it's been deleterious that we can go over from the, the muting of the question of, of, of Nietzsche's project and the unity of his thought when you treat him as a kind of fragmented philosopher, a liberal philosopher, or when you reduce Nietzsche to not having a kind of center of politics, 
first when of they all, say he's I, multiple like your family like the that's actually directly addressing Devin Gouray's claim last week which was when he said Nietzsche is multiple he can be read in these different ways even though there are this aristocratic politics in him he's a multiple and you're arguing against that correct I, I am arguing for a particular acknowledgement of the unity of the concepts from how perspectivism, will to power, eternal return, pathos of distance, function and relate to each other, and how implicit in Nietzsche also exists an interest in what he calls great politics, right? Great politics. Nietzsche enters into the fray of the left. Uh, Losurdo and others, Lukács, have argued that Nietzsche is more political than Marx. Why? Precisely because Marx did not exert analysis into art and reveal this kind of physiological underbelly of politics, right? And Nietzsche did. So in that sense, sure. The academics, the academic Nietzscheans, and I attend their conferences and I read their texts and I'm not necessarily interested in having some hostile relationship to, first of all, let it be said, my position on left Nietzscheans is that they are comrades. I'm for broad solidarity on the left. I'm for reasoned conversation, debate, discussion, etc. There's no interest on my behalf of kind of accusing left Nietzscheans as somehow um, crippling the left, right? I'm not really interested yeah, in not, that. Anymore. It's not like a completely, it's not like a contamination hypothesis, is it? It's not necessarily a contamination hypothesis. It is rather, let us revisit and reopen a new hermeneutic. Let us revisit. Because you see, uh, another thing here, Tony, is that when we read Nietzsche as an enemy to the left, and when we don't make excuses for the embedded uh, esoteric reactionary agenda, which we can discuss those, those agendas, and I think it's important that we do, we, we gain more from reading Nietzsche, in fact. We gain more because that's what he wanted. I would even argue that the dramatic personae of Zarathustra is meant to have that pugilistic exchange relation and actually what I have learned, and I document this in the book in the first chapter, the arc of my own personal biographical reading of Nietzsche, once I got linked into the parasitical method of reading, I would argue that he, Nietzsche, has taught me a lot more about politics, about life, about suffering, um, about aesthetics, about culture. And so I benefited from that, you know what I'm saying? And I felt that there's something repressed in the other modality of kind of sidelining Nietzsche or pretending that, that there's not there's something concrete and singular that is going on here, right? And so, I mean, we can, we can develop this, this, this more about the, the unity of his concepts, but this is, this is a bit of my objective. I think the other objective of the book is to, um, kind of reposition the left in certain ways, particularly around how we think of the revolutionary tradition. If the unity of Nietzsche's concepts are a response to the scandal of the French Revolution, right? 
especially in the no, in the notion that Germany itself and Nietzsche himself felt this felt occupied by France and by its egalitarian incrustations. Never, never forgetting, of course, Nietzsche's massive critique of Rousseau, who he saw as the moral spider of the French Revolution. What that actually means is that attachments to Nietzscheanism, when you place Nietzsche as the central philosopher of the left, I worry, I worry, Tony, that you shut down the revolutionary tradition. And you do this in a particular way, which I develop in the book, which is you accelerate a cultural revolutionary modality, but you actually exclude a theory of revolution that would be political, that would focus on the material and universal continuation of the unmet demands of particular form of abolition of capitalism and a particular form of economic universal equality. And that's what I worry about, is that you have the development of a kind of lopsided theory of revolution, a theory of revolution which is countercultural primarily, but which misses a connection to a critique of political economy in an adequate way. So those are some of my main concerns. Those are some of my main concerns, and I think some of the main things that are kind of animating the book. Yeah. Well, is that what you mean by he's a philosopher, Nietzsche is a philosopher of late capitalism? Because I think that on the surface seems like a very questionable claim just because Nietzsche's politics seem more aristocratic than capitalists and his idea of greatness is more like this aristocratic nobility as opposed to a bourgeois commercialized, commercialized aspiration of commercialized success. But I do get what you're saying in terms of the acceleration of culture, uh, but a sort of depoliticization and the aim to shut off working class consciousness. But this, in many ways, that coincides with the neoliberal dispositif towards always changing things and opening up new marketized. Because you cite a lot of thinkers in this book who have this sort of analysis of capitalism today, like Byung-Chul Han, you brought up a couple times, who, of course, I've covered on the podcast and a video before. And I mean, I think you may, maybe elaborate on that a little bit, because I think that is something a lot of people would be, a lot of Nietzscheans would be quite outraged about if you said he's a philosopher of late capitalism. But I think just in that last part you're talking about, about the culture and depoliticization, I think that is an interesting point I would like you to elaborate on with regards to that. Yeah, part of my claim here is, you know, Nietzsche says I don't, my philosophy does not create an individual morality. It is a philosophy of rank order more so and primarily. And I think the truth is, is that neoliberal capitalism, including even some contemporary analysis of the neo-feudal turn within our current iteration of capitalism, uh, present this Janus-faced system whereby ideologically we still have a ruling class. We still have actual like kind of collapse in social mobility and we have the incrustations, and I think the argument here is that capitalism always possesses elements of a feudal forms of dependency. So you see Nietzscheanism 
Nietzsche says that his followers uh, will be the ones who will be the most suspicious of the lures of dependence. So Nietzsche is, he says that transvaluation of values only happens away from the marketplace. Nietzsche himself concocts a type of uh, hyper-liberatory strategy to achieve what ends. And this is actually where Nietzsche and Marx have a kind of seeming coalescence. One of the primary ends the primary set of strategies of the Nietzschean community building project is the achievement of the pathos of distance, which is not an arcane historical concept. No, it is the idea that transvaluation of values only is successful when elements of culture that are noble are separate from lower elements of culture, which are mired in forms of resentment or mired in forms of intractable suffering. Nietzsche's critique of egalitarianism in all of its, its instantiations from feminist movement to socialist movement and so on uh, are not directed at poor people as such. They are actually directed at the intellectuals who would try to lift a sense of inferior people's uh, equality onto uh, the noble. That, that contamination is what nihilism is about, right? It is that contamination. So you see Nietzsche's speaking directly against the left. Speaking directly against the left. Now, why is Nietzsche a philosopher that is compatible with late capitalism? Well, in this, in this argument, my view would be that late capitalism is a system based on ideology that we can constantly and fluidly reinvent our own singularity. Nietzsche says that his philosophy is more interested in a social order in which people adhere to that order as stones, not as actors. In that sense, you see Nietzsche is very dialectical, right? He's interested in both the possibility of this singular self-discovery, of leading a dangerous life of self-discovery, on the precondition that great culture and great art can only occur when those singular individuals have a kind of separation from the problem of the wage worker. You see, because this is another reason why Nietzsche is very much our contemporary. One of the arguments that Nietzsche makes apropos slave morality, you see, because when was Nietzsche writing? Nietzsche was writing at the moment of the dissolution of chattel slavery in Europe and the United States. And one of the arguments that he makes is that this dissolution will only give rise to more insidious spiritual and psychological forms of enslavement. Right? So you see, he's saying that about forms of actual slave relation, and he's returning to the Greeks because the Greeks, his essay on the Greek state, for example, is a wonderful example of this, um, related to slavery in a way which needs to be resurrected. Read Nietzsche's Nachlis. There's a constant invitation to his followers, to his readers, 
to reinvent a new conception of slavery, right? This goes back to the Janus-faced singular movement, self-discovery, and the hard reality of rigid class and caste hierarchies of our world. So I think that for anybody who has experienced in their own life, you know, again, Nietzsche invites us to read him philosophically and biographically. Nietzsche invites, and this is why he's so alluring. He invites us into the layer of his own biographical philosophical reflections. Read Ecce Homo is an incredible example of this. And one of the things we've missed in these kind of innocent portrayals, and part of the problem is that the portrayals of Nietzsche, like by Kaufman, Walter Kaufman, have literally removed Nietzsche's actual comments and words that he uses about the annihilation of the failed, the annihilation of the weak. These are terms that Nietzsche uses. Read Richard Wolin's new book on Heidegger, where he shows the thousands of epistolary uh, documents, letters, and notes of Heidegger, and notice the insane influence of Heidegger's fascism directly from Nietzsche. Now, that, of course, is not to say that Nietzsche is a proto-fascist, because the truth is, Nietzsche's not a proto-fascist in my reading. He's more sophisticated than that. And I think that those are vulgar readings. Why? Well, first of all, I mean, there's this obvious point that his sister, when she went to this kind of white supremacist colony in South America, uh, he was opposed to this kind of vulgar uh, form of race-based thinking. No, but, but Nietzsche presents a theory of racial difference that I think actually describes contemporary capital, racial capitalism really well. And this is something I talk about in the book, okay? So Nietzsche, Nietzsche is our contemporary because he describes in this prophetic way the way our society now functions, right? And he also, I think, has been somebody who has allowed for a certain understanding of capitalist hierarchy, that his philosophy becomes a kind of natural reflection of that. Like, for example, in the biography of Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. Walter Isaacson says, Steve Jobs didn't need to read Nietzsche to feel like he was an Ubermensch, right? So there is this kind of generalized Nietzscheanism. Now, you could say, and I would, I would grant the left Nietzschean this point, that, well, Nietzsche would respond to pop Nietzscheanism by, of course, he would, by, by renouncing it and so on. I mean, but that actually is, one of the reasons why Nietzsche is so interesting and why Nietzsche and St. Paul are so comparable. Why? Because we know St. Paul's, one of his most essential maxims in his reading of, of the foundation of the Christian community is that one does not become a Christian until they have renounced all of their dependencies. Right? That's the exact condition of what Nietzsche invites us to. So he invites you to this liberated a community to come, right? To be prepared to do what? That's the esoteric dimension. That's, that's what Jung, in his lectures on Nietzsche in the 1930s, warned everyone against, which is this esoteric dimension for reinventing slavery, reinventing cruelty, muting the suffering of wage workers, et cetera, et cetera. Those are not mere biographical appendages. Those should be the source 
of a certain agonism that we bring when we read Nietzsche. Without that, it's a kind of repressive way to read him. And that's actually part of what my biographical story is with reading Nietzsche, which is I read this kind of innocent portrayals and then I read these hardcore portrayals and I'm like, wait a second, 2008 happened. I myself became more class conscious and I was a former Nietzschean and now I'm reading him and he's a great antagonist to many of my comrades and family members back home who are like dying from drug overdoses and having terrible experiences and so on. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy is definitely an enemy to me and my people, right? And so like, why are we reading him that way? And actually, I would even say further that it's kind of like a um, psychoanalytic point, right? Which is um, when somebody challenges you or when somebody tries to normalize a system of domination, you want to bring out all of your own tools of defense, right? You want to bring out like your own methods to combat them. And so this idea that he shouldn't be combated, actually, I don't even think Nietzsche would want us to say that. If socialists in 2023 are reading Nietzsche, my argument would be that he would want us to have this pugilistic relationship to him. Imagine him thinking, yeah, oh, these socialists try to say that I don't really hold these grand politics. I don't think that he would like that. I think we need a more honest confrontation with him. That's what my book is trying to do. That's, I, I, like, I like how you said it there because this is, originally when I was getting into your book, I was worried you were going to make a sort of instrumentalized argument, which was it would be that, oh, we should disregard Nietzsche because he's not useful for class politics or he's not useful. Why, why are we reading these uh, arcane uh, right-wing philosophers? And I've seen certain individuals make that sort of argument with even left thinkers like post-structuralists. They say, well, they don't help us build communism, so why should we read them? It is so far from what you're arguing. What I, what I think, uh, like to maybe rephrase what you're arguing, and you can uh, correct me if you believe that it's a fair characterization, is I think you're, more, you're not trying to say that uh, we shouldn't read Nietzsche because he's not particularly useful or that he can you know, make us right-wingers per se, but rather that um, we should acknowledge that Nietzsche, what Nietzsche's political positions actually are to actually understand Nietzsche as a challenge to the left rather than a domestication of Nietzsche because we might read him and we might see the concepts we like. And because of that, we might want to co-opt concepts and in doing so justify that co-option through a sort of domestication of his ideas. And so I, I do want to say this is I have a different story with reading Nietzsche a little bit. So when I first got into Nietzsche, it was, he was one of the first thinkers I, I, I fully just I actually fully read his books. And I, w I was in high school already when I first read Nietzsche. And I didn't, I, at this time, I was like a social democrat type person who thought he was a socialist. I didn't really ever see the, in Nietzsche a left-wing tendency at all. Or even, I, I, to me, it was very clear he was a right-winger. Like, I saw, I, I read him like the way I see Machiavelli. He's like devil incarnate, but he presents something very compelling. Something he is getting at, I, I believe, were a lot of truths, a lot of things that are unexamined by leftists. But I mean, it was clear just from genealogy of morality, the way he talks about uh, why should we moralize hawks eating the small, eating the mice or whatever. Like, he has this view of naturalized hierarchies and a very clear elitism. I mean, it's unmistakable, I thought. But the way I saw it is still, I mean, why can't we, you know, use some, some of his ideas, like I thought, resentiment, slave morality, the will to power, these are interesting things to acknowledge because 
if we presuppose proletariat is uh, in the you could say the powerless majority are innocent and that they, like they they're inherently good because of their position and framing politics like this and rich people are inherently morally bad as opposed to a more you know a marxist class materialist analysis which i see as a, as a problem with the left the sort of moralistic thinking it leads to a kind of dangerous politics where you think that if you just put the proletarian in charge they'll necessarily you'll they'll necessarily or, or you'll or they'll necessarily build socialism now this is a whole other angle of critique maybe we can get into later but i, I would say so there's two questions i do want to ask and we can maybe just get on the first one because the other one will take way longer and that is so your argument is that your main argument that there we should just look at nietzsche for what he is in his actual context as an enemy of the left but still use his concepts rather than try to pretend that he's a, a sort of that he's compatible with marxism because I've seen many people argue, you, you go over the people throughout history who made this argument, and I guess for my audience, we'll know Jonas Cheka, CCK Philosophy, who I like a lot, big fan of his channel. Uh, he's written the book, How to Philosophize with a Hammer and Sickle, trying to synthesize Marx and Nietzsche. I think you're kind of saying, well, we, we shouldn't, and in his, I don't want to, I'd let him speak for himself if he comes on the show at some point, but his sort of thing is, yeah, Nietzsche wasn't a leftist, but his critiques of socialism are critiques of non-Marxist socialism, but it, there's an implication in his writing that maybe if he read Marx, he wouldn't be so opposed to socialism. And I think from reading your book, it's like very clear. now. I mean, he's opposed to egalitarian politics. He is a class politics. It's not like an apolitical thinker. And so, okay, I guess the question is there, is that a fair characterization of your argument with or, or your project with this book? And two, this is maybe you'll bring us in a whole other conversation, which I want to get to at some point anyway, is what kind of what what concepts in Nietzsche do you think are actually useful to work through? It, assuming we read him through as a right wing thinker, as an anti egalitarian mm -hmm. thinker. Yes. So I think the great question. So yes, I am for a new reading method to open up a kind of forgotten horizon of engagement with nature, which thinkers from Eric Hobsbawm to Kurt Eisner, who I mentioned before, to Georg Lukacs, to Jeffrey Waite, to Domenico Lucerto, to Ishe Landa, to Don Dombowski, to Harrison Fluss. Um, of course, Nietzscheanism has an immediate problem, which is dominated by way too many men in its field, which I recognize as a problem. But Nonetheless, I think it has reverberations to other struggles outside of just question of capitalism. Because I think one of the points you made about Sika's argument that perhaps there is an implied notion that Nietzsche's critiques of during are resemble Engels' critique in anti-during, for example, right? And then we can kind of create a kind of Nietzsche who is compatible with Marx because Marx was also opposed to bourgeois morality, right? Or Marx's critique of commodity, of reification, right? Of this kind of general condition of alienated consciousness within capitalism could be thought homologously to slave morality in Nietzsche's sense. And I think all of those invitations are exactly what my book is trying to open, 
right? But to open it up in a slightly new way, right? Through this new reading method that centers Nietzsche's politics as primary. And I think what we find there, apropos the question of um, liberation from slave morality or from reification, it's a huge debate within Marxist philosophy. And a kind of vulgar Stalinist notion would have it that we create state socialism and we have a kind of non-reified or non-fetishized form of communal possibility. I think that Nietzsche could be read as providing a profound skepticism on something like that. I think that's valuable. Of course, we don't need him in particular as a philosopher to generate that skepticism. It can come from elsewhere. But the point is, is that Nietzsche was a thinker of political economy. Nietzsche had very particular arguments about property relations in relationship to his critique of slave morality. For example, his argument was not only against socialist intellectuals, as I mentioned before, it was also against the notion that communal property relations will only re-entrench forms of resentment. Again, having to do with this imbalance of pathos of distance and this necessary hierarchy. So if you extinguish Nietzsche's uh, commitments to the esoteric achievement of rank order, if you extinguish those, you extinguish Nietzscheanism itself. And you then just look at him almost like a buffet of like, okay, well, we can just pull perspectivism. We can pull transvaluation of values. We can pull uh, the eternal return out and use these concepts in a singular way. But I don't think that that's what left Nietzscheans are interested in. Left Nietzscheans also want to make a claim that no, there's, there is a sort of, they're not really interested in this, what I would call a kind of appropriation model of reading him. I think, and you know, I, I have a whole chapter of examples of left Nietzscheans that follow the model of elective affinity, which is this more like Jonas Sika model of there's an easy synthesis possible. Don't worry about Nietzsche's esoteric agenda for rank order and hierarchy and anti-egalitarianism. I see that in him. I see that in French Nietzscheans. Um, I see that in Deleuze. I see that in Derrida. I see that in a lot of philosophers coming out of the May 68 generation. That's a whole other topic we can discuss. But again, there's another way of being a left Nietzschean, but not, not a left Nietzschean, being a Marxist reader of Nietzsche that is parasitical. And that parasitical reading, I think, is willing to appropriate Nietzschean concepts. Because why? Because Nietzsche gives a sort of theoretical surplus to the left on condition that we read that surplus as coming from a very perverse and sadomasochistic position and reading it accordingly and reading it as a, something that we must transcend but also retain. Because Nietzsche has a critique and he has a prescription. It is the prescription that we must avoid but it is the critique that we must learn from. That would be one way to put my position. Now, you asked a question, I think it might be a good time to answer it. Are there specific Nietzschean ideas that I would advocate? Was that kind of your question? Not so much advocate, but where does Nietzsche have a point? Like, where, where, sure. what critiques of his do you think okay. might hold some weight that the left should actually seriously deal with? Because yeah. for me, one of those things is, is slave morality. Uh, so here's, here's how I would answer that. Here's how to answer that. First of all, the concept of slave morality, I find arcane and very bound up with his own idiosyncratic project. I would prefer to understand Nietzsche's 
the site of Nietzsche's most significant contributions to the left to exist within his comments on social suffering and resentment and the way that passivity forms at a collective level. In this way, Nietzsche becomes a perverse educator to anyone on the left in the sense that, and we see this in the example of Huey Newton from the Black Panthers, who was a great reader of Nietzsche. What did Nietzsche give to Huey Newton? Nietzsche gave to Huey Newton the sense of the radicalization of consciousness. Paradoxically, even though uh, Huey Newton was reading these kind of watered down translations and so on, it's a great paradox. It just shows how political Nietzsche really is. So in that sense, it's the same with Jack London, because Jack London, the American socialist and popular novel writer, um, he found a proletariat just as Huey Newton found the black working class and the black lumpen proletariat to be in a condition of passivity, to be in a condition where they were defeated, to be in a condition where the class struggle had muted their resolve to fight, right? Again, a parasitical reading of Nietzsche, which I argue both Newton and London did, allowed for them to appropriate Nietzsche's notions of transvaluation of values in particular to effectuate the radicalization of proletarian consciousness, right? Now, a lot of left Nietzscheans aren't really interested in radicalizing proletarian consciousness because part of one of the dangers of left Nietzscheanism is that they become post-class thinkers, right? Or they become actually interested in a form of thinking um, counterculture, which would only really be housed within uh, bourgeoisie, or there's a sense in which they would actually abandon this notion that Marx and Engels put forward in Communist Manifesto that indeed there is in capitalism a contestation between two primary classes. So a lot of left Nietzscheans actually abandon that. I think we should never abandon that. But a parasitical reading, if you don't abandon the class analysis, could very well use Nietzsche for furthering the art of cultural revolution. And I can give the example of how Huey Newton actually did that and how Jack London did that. That's my favorite parts of the book, the whole part on Huey Newton, because I actually had Huey Newton, the Huey Newton reader in one of my top 10, in my top 10 books of 2021 uh, a while ago, the video I did. And I really like Huey Newton, and I like, I like particularly that chapter about how he, he was influenced by Nietzsche. Kind of, I, I do want to get into that after, but I'm, I mean, the thing is, you, you do acknowledge that as a parasitical reading, but you said uh, slave morality is an arcane concept. Just what you mean by well because when you adopt it you also have to adopt the trans historical foothold which i think itself is problematic and which needs to be contested this notion that it's a notion of a skepticism to universal history now deleuze and guattari and anti-oedipus create in very creative directions a whole kind of nietzschean historicism in some ways and people have developed these lines but you know, the problem that I have with them, like with Foucault, they reconstruct a conception of history, which is a kind of non-emancipatory conception of history. In other words, the Nietzschean skepticism of egalitarian revolution means that significant moments of epistemic breaks in history are not uh, located at the site of revolutions. And I think that from Marx's point of view, they are. And I think part of what I'm interested in for today's left is for us to resurrect the meaning of revolution today. 
And furthermore, I would argue, and I really get this from Kluge and Neck, these two Marxist German thinkers that are kind of post-Frankfurt school thinkers, where they argue in their book on uh, the proletarian control revolution or the concept of proletarian revolution, uh, that capitalism is always undergoing a form of cultural revolution and that cultural revolution and cultural politics or the culturalization of politics can kind of go on ad infinitum. And I think that what that means is that Nietzscheanism, because it forecloses political egalitarian revolution and transformations in the political economic structure, that means that actually he can kind of do all of his magic all day long. And it doesn't really change things in some sense. And that my argument, of course, is that, well, from his point of view, it's not really meant to change things. See, this is why I can make the argument that at the end of the day, Nietzsche is uh, putting forward an argument that is implicit solidarity with the bourgeois standpoint, right? Even though he distances himself from bourgeois standpoint all the time. That's, I get this from Lukács in The Destruction of Reason. Of course, that's part of what philosophers have always done. Like, this is why I have a whole section on Nietzsche and Pascal. Pascal did something very similar with his concepts. So anyways, to, to, I lost the thread of where we started, but yeah, we're, I think you, you drift. I, that was a really good point about the late capitalism. And I just want to say before I forget, I have a, a YouTube short called Inverted Totalitarianism. Uh, it's loosely based, but it's my own writing for this, this little thing. But it's this summary of what will be a, a bigger video, but it's on Sheldon Wallen's Inverted Totalitarianism. And he's one of those people who early in his writings kind of also was writing about that kind of new capitalism in which it's about constant change all the time. He had this line that the new capitalism, uh, the new to inverted totalitarianism, as he calls it, is not, doesn't promote, unlike fascism, it, unlike the rigidity of fascism, it promotes fashionism, constant adaptation to new trends. And yeah, and, like this it, is why, um, this is why in Petra Sloterdijk's reading, uh, You Must Change Your Life, you see, for a liberal Nietzschean, and I don't really analyze liberal Nietzscheans, but for a liberal Nietzschean, the market can become the site for the determination of the unity of the Nietzschean project because it becomes the site for the imminent decision on the ascending and the declining lines of humanity. What's the problem with egalitarian tradition and socialist tradition does, which Nietzsche and Sloterdijk and others despise, is that they prevent us from locating that imminent division in society. Now, this is another reason why Nietzscheanism has a certain victory over contemporary capitalism, because one of the logics of class in contemporary capitalism is a sadomasochistic logic in which class is best understood as winners and losers. And I argue that liberal Nietzscheans are fine with this mythology, with this fiction of winners and losers, and they actually are fine to elevate this as a kind of general truth. And when you elevate that as a general truth, uh, what you end up getting is a form of community formation that is um, highly sadomasochistic because what it's trying to do is constantly, uh, well, it is composed of a group of people who have a difficult time transcending the suspicion that at the end of the day, they themselves may be losers. And so I make an argument in my analysis of Zarathustra that this is a logic that is implicit in Zarathustra. 
that there is this lingering sadomasochistic vision, which is very difficult to shrug off, I think. And that which makes Nietzsche what? Because you see, part of the issue with Nietzsche on suffering that, that I didn't mention that I think is worth mentioning that hits this class experiential dimension very sensitively is the following point, which is that Nietzsche wanted to invite his followers to enter into a form of suffering that would be at a more abstract and refined level than ordinary suffering as born from material constraints of wage labor. Part of the problem with socialism and egalitarianism is that they disrupt that balance. And Nietzsche saw in the Greek society the perfect achievement of that separation. Modernity needs to escape slave morality by, re by bringing back that division. So neoliberal capitalism, in some sense, at least the bourgeoisie, the ruling elite, you see, they possess that same ideology. They believe that the losers, the working class, mostly, we can say, uh, deserve to be in this condition. They deserve to be in this condition. That is an anti-materialist, um, gaslighting, abusive, dominating, insidious ideology, which has to be combated and which is like the source of things like inseldom, right? Like when people internalize that, right? Like to me, it's a mythology. It's why I think class politics is important as a project of education. Because actually I do think, Tony, in my 40 years of living, I do think people internalize the world that way. And I do think that it harms them psychically. But you see Nietzsche, what did Nietzsche say about changing those conditions. Well, he said to change those conditions vis-a-vis -vis welfare or vis-a-vis -vis improving the conditions of equality uh, is, not, is, not, is explicitly not on the table for him. What is on the table? What is on the table is the necessity for those who suffer at lower levels to adjust to conditions of pain and in fact to increase conditions of pain so that they can possibly ascend. And this is where Nietzsche also links to our present in the sense that liberal meritocratic ideology is basically the same message in this notion of bootstrap algerism and so on, which is basically the same thing for working class people. Fight in a game that's rigged and live this illusion in which you are fighting this kind of grand historic forces, and maybe at the end you will become a victor. Maybe you will become a winner. It's likely that you may be a loser. You must be afraid that you may be a loser. I think socialists need to actually abolish this mythology, but it's super hard to do, I think, because I think it's quite embedded. I, I actually do think it's quite embedded. I think we have a lot of kind of psychoanalytic disavowals. We like to pretend that we don't internalize the world that way, but I think that actually we do, and it's a form of class domination. And you see, my problem is, and I'll stop here, is that Nietzsche kind of wanted to strengthen this, right? So, so I want to bring up a point as to what I view as the useful rational kernel in slave morality and its way it can be utilized and almost inverted by leftists. And the, at least the way I always, the way I always thought of it in its use. Similar, actually, in the way that you wrote about how Huey Newton thought it was useful. I want you. By, after I describe this, I want like to see if you think that this is a parasitical reading of Nietzsche, an example of it, because 
the way I way I've read Nietzsche, and I've I expressed this in one of my earliest podcasts when I was definitely more sympathetic to Nietzscheanism than I am now. But I would say I still am pretty sympathetic, probably. Uh, but I, I would say, like, yeah, I think a lot of your critiques are, are very legitimate. But this was how I, I thought about the application of slave morality. Like, what did Nietzsche hate about Christianity, right? He hated that Christianity, in a sense, kind of gave the poor a moral framework in which they could feel uh, that they could, they could feel that they ha- had a sense of moral virtue by the fact that they were what the powerful people were not. Right, they had the meek shall inherit the earth. He he kind of reads this as something that could be. He hates it partially because he thinks it can empower the poor. But the way I've I've always read it is, I always thought that kind of ideology that that meek shall inherit the earth, be the better person, turn the other other cheek. I always thought that disempowered the poor, and I always saw this kind of thinking flood. It still lingered in a lot of the way leftists thought about violence. And revolution. I always thought it interesting that a lot of left leftists would tend to condemn all the revolutions which succeeded, like the likes of Lenin, because all the people who held state power, who actually you know succeeded in a revolution and inevitably got their hands dirty and had had to bear the responsibility that comes with power, they would kind of condemn them. This sort of uh, fetishization of Nonviolence. I mean, you see this, and I don't even need to name the thinkers who who advocate such things. But there is there is a sort of politics in not just the radical left, I guess you could say, but especially among the more moderate social democrats who tend to think that oh well, we shouldn't embrace such tactics like, for example, violence, because that is you know we should we should be the better people. We're the better people. We have to. Uh, hold such morality or as well as in, in you know, some of it's even class-based i think there is this kind of morality in which certain figures on, on the left have been kind of condemned just purely based on their class position like you know, the famous twitch streamer and i always thought that kind of politics is i mean it is not helpful and it's also not affirmative one thing i always thought was compelling about nietzsche's critique and how it can be used by the left is i think yeah this sort of slave morality disempowers the poor as opposed to empowers. And instead, we should have an affirmation. Like, oh, a good good example of this, perfect example of this, is uh, I talked about this in a video on taxing the rich, is I was disliked about the tax the rich discourse was it's always framed as we need to take from them and that's all it is. And that's and how does that actually empower what politics of, not that that's an inherently bad thing to tax the rich, of course, but what about what, is the politics there of actually affirmate, affirmation. And for me, that's where I saw, thought was the politics of affirmation was always in Marx, that, you know, about seizing the means of production. It's actually about the, the proletariat's goal is to abolish itself. It's not to fetishize itself. It's, it's to abolish itself, to abolish class antagonisms, to carry history forward, to carry the emancipation of human faculties and fulfill the Enlightenment goal of freedom. And uh, I thought that in a way that, that Nietzschean critique could be inverted to critique these tendencies that I thought were life-denying on the left, that were using a moral system that was, had a pacifying effect. I don't know how you would, what you make of that, but that's always the way I kind of made use of Nietzsche, so to speak, in my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of Deleuze's book on Nietzsche, which is really striking text in the sense that um, 
what he's trying to locate in Nietzsche is a the way that culture codes our subjectivity in such profound ways that it's almost inescapable. And this is, I think, a certain reading of Nietzsche, which the left, like we think here of Foucault's introduction to Anti-Oedipus, a guide to non-fascist living, which I argue in my, in my book, um, creates a kind of difficulty around how we think of escaping the lures of dependence, to use Nietzsche's concepts. Because you can see immediately that what Deleuze is interested in is forging a type of rebellion from any incrustation or instantiation of forms of obedience, right? Kind of going back to this distinction that Nietzsche makes in the genealogy around um, the sovereign individual is the one who can make a promise. And this is tied into the debtor relation, right? And so Nietzsche's critique of slave morality, which of course is not reducible just to this kind of ancient antiquity context. No, it's a critique of, uh, applicable to modern life. When taken up on the left, can actually result in a hyper-accelerationist revolt, rebellion, this notion of aristocratic rebellion. But I think one of the challenges there revolves around the following point, which is a philosophical point and why Nietzsche needs to be supplemented at this precise point. It needs to be supplemented with a kind of tradition of Hegelian and Marxist dialectics because as Marxists, and I'm not necessarily critiquing anarchism here, but one could kind of see that, this notion of sublation, I think, matters, right? Like bourgeois and liberal read forms... read my mind for one of my questions, but... Yeah, bourgeois and liberal forms of freedom like the Nietzschean approach, the Nietzschean praxis that the left would adopt would be one which is interested in a complete destruction of them, right? It's, that's why it's so potent. That's why Nietzsche's transvaluation of values can be appropriated in this radical way. It is, it is militant. We must grant that. But I think what happens there is uh, a particular focus on the site of that radicalism, again, at the site of culture. And this is what I argue in my, in my section on Deleuze's Nietzsche, it becomes the shortcoming. It becomes a reduction of the concept of liberation to counterculture. And that forecloses the fact that in capitalist society, we have layers of collective groups of people who need to be educated into a socialist vision so that they can form the, the solidarity necessary for broad-scale political organization and education and so on. What I, what, what I think happens with Nietzscheanism is a kind of disregard for that form of thinking contestation of the system. And it becomes a kind of, and I suggest this in reference to a lot of books that have been, been written about Nietzscheanism historically, if that form of revolt becomes particularly attractive to an avant-garde, uh, highly educated, particular form of intellectual. So you see, therefore, Nietzscheanism, and I'm not going to say that Nietzscheanism is an adolescent fetish. 
I think those are offensive arguments. It can be that's sure. Why it that's why it attracts people when they're young. That's why I was the first philosopher I got into when I was high school. Yeah, that's true. That's but then you have the fact that like the whole like neoconservative philosophy of Leo Strauss is founded there. And like you have all of these different instantiation of Nietzscheanism. So when you well, reduce him... Stra I don't want to say, I don't want to defend my boy Strauss first, because uh, Stra Strauss is a right winger. No, let's them make no mistake. But definitely he thought Nietzsche, he thought Nietzsche was a grand godfather of fascism. He thought Nietzsche invented uh, a particular form of right-wing secular atheism that set, right. the, set the seeds for fascism. This is all obviously also an argument, because I know you wanted to ask me the question, is there a concrete example of how Nietzsche has negatively affected the yeah. left? Well, the best concrete example is if you read Steve Sternhill's book, the birth of fascist ideology, where we are shown the direct linkage between Mussolini and Nietzsche. One of my friends has recently translated Mussolini's lectures on Nietzsche, by the way. And the Third Reich was split in their intellectual allegiance to Nietzsche, uh, but Mussolini was not. And uh, Sternhell makes the argument that what happened there was a vitalist Nietzschean turn to a particular form of thinking revolution, which was at the cultural elite level. And Nietzscheanism, when it latched onto socialist forms of agitation, uh, shut down political revolution. In that sense, as Kurt Eisner also says in his work, Nietzsche shuts down the rationalist kernel of Marxism, its commitment to the Enlightenment. And this kind of brings us back to this notion of the need for dialectics when thinking about contesting institutions and Deleuze and the inadequacy, I think, of how a lot of Deleuzean works, when we judge them today, have in some ways been kind of co-opted by hegemonic forms of liberalism, a kind of hyper-liberalism in some sense. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that I think that Nietzscheanism has definitely, <laughs> definitely affected the left in ways which are, I mean, there's, there's an incredible sociological study at the turn of the century, which is Nietzsche in the judgment of the German working class. And I really learned a lot from this sociological study because what it showed was that workers, like factory workers, like Marxist proletarian workers in that era, read Nietzsche as parasites. And I really found the same as, with London. And with, with socialism at the time, right? Because at the time before the second world war, during the period of like the second and then third international, Nietzsche was a live wire presence within the socialist left. And he was seen as an aristocratic enemy, but one who had to be read. I mean, why else? I don't know if you're aware of this in my section on Bolshevism and Nietzscheanism. You know, the Bolsheviks actually incorporated forms of communal festival. You should consider like a video on this. It's the other thing I want to say about your videos. Are you aware that, I think you are aware of this, that Madame Mao in the Chinese Cultural yeah, Revolution. You sent me the article that you wrote. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You're aware of it. Yeah, you're yeah. aware of it. Uh, she broke from socialist realism, right? With a Nietzschean form of aesthetics. That's a whole other topic. Yeah, I mentioned, I kind of mentioned that she would have been highly persecuted if people knew about what her views on art really were. 
Gramsci has this concept of what he calls transformismo. Transformismo, which refers to this kind of notion of a concept having the capacity for diffusing itself within a politi political ideological constellation, right? And so it's kind of like what you call contamination thesis, right? And Jeff Waite in his book, Nietzsche's Corpse, understands Nietzscheanism as an ISM, but he actually puts a hyphen at A-N-I-S-M as a kind of Derridian play on animism, like Nietzsche has an animistic. So Nietzscheanism has a transformismo onto any political ideological constellation in which it latches onto. I think that's actually a very helpful way to understand the meaning of Nietzscheanism, which is a kind of um, oscillating form of kind of like a template or a scaffolding that can superimpose itself onto a political constellation. And then you say, okay, fine, if it does that, can we then kind of abstract the logics of Nietzscheanism across these? And one of the arguments in my book is, of course, that we can't, right? That like Nietzscheanism is real, it's locatable, and like we, we have a benefit, it's beneficial to us to see how it mutates and influences liberal forms, fascist forms, socialist forms, Marxist forms, and so on. And even Nietzsche himself, by the way, as a biographical point, once wrote a letter to one of his colleagues in um, his later years when he became famous, um, where he said, all of these anarchists and crazy socialists and avant-garde artists and the most under, he said, the most underground uh, thinkers across Europe are latched onto my, my thought. And I think that Nietzsche himself didn't quite know, didn't quite know what to think. But you see, what, one thing that is clear when you read like his epistolary material and binoculars and so on, is that I think that Nietzsche wanted his influence to be as vast as possible. This is why we know in Safranov's recent book, Nietzsche and Political Economy, that Nietzsche was playing the stock exchange because you see, he retired in his like mid thirties, right? And he had like an inheritance and he like bet, bet money on it. Why? Well, he was trying to raise money for his reputation. He was trying to raise money to increase his fame, right? He was trying to raise money to ensure that his books were reviewed at the top places and that his influence would exist for 2000 years, as he famously says. So you see my point, which is that's another way to read Nietzsche, which is a kind of transformismo. You mentioned a lot of things there. And one thing I do want to just ask again, this is something that will definitely help me grapple with the contradictions in Nietzsche's thought and the way I make use of them and think about them. Because as I was mentioning before, I think Nietzsche's critique of slave morality and guilty conscience can sort of be inverted a little bit. The point I was making with regard to the pacification and how adopting the opposite, opposite moral system of the people in a higher class position, that's the way I, I read it, can actually have a pacifying effect. It's like a coping mechanism to say that the ruling class, they have power and therefore, to look look at power as this negative thing, as opposed to uh, and uh, adopt a moral system that is opposite to theirs, as a way of almost 
building one's own moral righteousness, self-righteousness, which I think has a pacifying force as opposed to an empowering force because, for example, right, the, the state is violent and the, our enemies are violent. We should turn the other cheek. We should be the better person. I always thought that uh, this, this is where like, Nietzsche can have some use for the left because this sort of, and, and that's why I like the leftists I liked always rejected this kind of thinking anyway. Uh, you know, like Marx himself, like like Lenin, and um, I think it's why many anarchists as well, so, uh, like Emma Goldman. I'm not an anarchist, but I can see why she was attracted to maybe that aspect of Nietzsche. And I mean, what is is there something there to be taken note of? Because I'll give it another example, just since we're on a podcast. I think this is a somewhat ironic example, but I know I, I know a lot of smart people who detest the idea of like making videos or podcasting because they'll say something like podcast is for people who have a grand a grandiose sense of self-importance they think that their opinion matters and people who start podcasts are egotistical and usually dumb because if they think their opinion matters you know they're dunning-kruger effect etc cetera, etc cetera. i think while that might be have some truth to that i mean i think i think it's kind of life-denying because if one thing if one really thinks that they have the better ideas, why don't they try to get those ideas out there? I mean, and that's, hey, you do that. You have a podcast, right? A lot of academics write books that go into the abyss. No one reads them. And they might have great ideas. They might be, have some great things to say, but they don't, you know, assert their will, so to speak, to, and to uh, affirm their visions that they want to actually see exist in the world. And I think there's this this real this real life denying attitude that it's not just a phenomenon of leftist phenomenon of right wingers I think it's a phenomenon that's uh, that is I think plagues anyone who wants to succeed. <laughs> this is where I guess you could say there is that Nietzscheanism that does influence me and it does appeal to me still. And I don't know what you'd think about that whole sort of thinking of mine yep. with regard to sure. the No, it's a good question. I mean, I I'm for it. I'm for this parasitical appropriation, because I think one of the outcomes, or you could say the success of capitalist hierarchy is not merely the fact that capitalist hierarchy is capable of convincing those that are succumbed to it, that it's not real, right? Through this notion of entrepreneurialism or merit meritocracy or sort of competitive struggle or winner loser society. Um, there is a bad conscience that can form um, amongst the working class that needs to be um, educated, alerted, shooken up, et cetera, et cetera. There needs to be um, a project in a Marxist sense of class consciousness building. And I know that part of the challenge when you say class consciousness building is that that also has been kind of hijacked by liberals, like in the same way, like Lukács. And his notion of the standpoint of the proletariat from history and class consciousness, you know, has been sort of taken into identity politics and it's kind of been liberalized and so on and so forth. But I do think that there is a kernel, and I do state this in the book, of a certain radicalism that Nietzsche can teach the left. And I do submit to that. And I would even further go further to say that, again, when we face him squarely um, as a comprehensive political thinker who is diametrically opposed to our prescriptive interests, 
but who we learn from on the level of critique, then actually reading Nietzsche becomes kind of like something which, you know, his famous point where he said, um, no new idea was ever developed sitting down. It was always in the free and open air. And this notion that like, you know, literally like in history, Nietzsche is inspired like the backpacking movement and like people to go off and like have this ascetic self-discovery. I myself had a self-discovery as a kind of political, spiritual self-discovery with Nietzsche when I was in my 20s. But then coming back to him now, more recently, through a Marxist parasitical lens, I still had that self-discovery, but now I'm more interested in how I can energistically apply it to like class consciousness ends. So, you know, again, it's this distinction that I'm trying to make between critique and prescription. So if we're clear on that, then absolutely. Let, let that override. I mean, why else would I study a thinker like Lacan? Lacan himself was of interest to the left during the post-68 period and during 68 because he was a great skeptic of revolution, actually. Like, go back and read Seminar 17, The Other Side of Psychoanalysis, where there's like a thousand students in his lecture room. What he's really saying is a certain profound skepticism about the possibility of revolution. Nietzsche's also a skeptic of revolution, as I mentioned. But we're not, right? Like, we're not. We're not skeptics of revolution. And I think that... Well, that, that's notion not to of, say we shouldn't be skeptical, but not against. Well, I mean, this goes back to the Gramscian point, which I think actually is a very useful point, which is, you see, Gramsci was a reader of Nietzsche. I was And Machiavelli. I loved his, the way he reads Machiavelli as well. Modern yeah, sense. and one of the things we see here is that, um, you know, there's a tradition in emancipatory thought which would put forward the kind of basic claim that emancipatory movements produce a catharsis which upends social conventions, which upends social morality, which changes society. This goes back to this distinction between political and cultural revolution. But you see, Nietzsche provides such profound skepticism on the prospect of egalitarian political revolution, not on cultural. Cultural revolution is fine. The cultural revolution doesn't change the undergirding material class dynamics, you see? So Gramsci says, as Marxists, we must be for catharsis. As Marxists, we must actually see revolution as producing a cathartic effect. It's like the same notion of optimism that Ernst Bloch puts forward. So Nietzschean pessimism, like go read The Birth of Tragedy, is concocted as a pessimism over the egalitarian prospects of the socialist movement writ large. Now, of course, as an interesting side point, Marx and Engels were massive critics of the socialist movement themselves. But I think that the point there is that Marx, Marx and Engels possess a fundamental optimism about the possibility of revolution. Otherwise, like, what are we doing? Otherwise, like, what, what would this be for? You see my point? Like, mm. it, it's this circumscription of a particular form of cultural revolution and liberation, which I find problematic. It's the same, it's the same thesis that you have in Boltansky and Chiapello's The New Spirit of Capitalism, where they argue quite convincingly that May 68 was basically kind of co-opted by 
corporate management and business culture, right? In this notion of like, you mm -hmm. can change everything. And like, like it's part of the reason why the signifier of revolution died after 68. Yeah. Because Zizek's been saying that for a minute. In the it's the same notion. I mean, I mean, where can we get a theory of revolution that would be capable of transcending bourgeois class domination? And the answer is really only in Marxism. Nietzsche gives some side peripheral advice and commentary um, because you see, why does he, he gives, he gives advice in domains of social life that Marx doesn't talk about, which is uh, because Nietzsche was so engaged with the question of suffering. Reading Nietzsche, and especially this notion that who Nietzsche invites you to become, you will suffer at a more refined level. And that otium is very important concept for Nietzsche yeah. when he was inscripted as a young man um, to fight in the Franco-Prussian war, which he never fully fought, but nonetheless, the, 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 the Prussian generals had this notion of otium et vellum, right? Which is um, struggle for the preservation of leisure time for the elite. Yeah. And this notion of otium is so significant, like in Nietzsche's critique of the United States, he says, this is a society which is devoid of otium. And he's totally right about that. Like Nietzsche's critique of America, of its commercialism and its entrepreneurialism, he said would lead to an exhaustion of the spirit. And he even says America is the future, which is an exhaust people, exhausted people, right? That's a brilliant, brilliant point. Right. And I think it's absolutely correct. But again, yeah, he has elements, he has elements of anti-capitalism in him, right? With like, even the idea of the market, kind of the fact that you have a decline, he, he has a lot of Adorno's critiques, but except he's more, you know, blames the, blames the masses, whereas Adorno blames the massification of capitalist markets. But the fact that like capitalists have to appeal to the everybody all the time to maximize profit, they end up watering things down and creating a degeneration of culture, so to speak. Like, but of course, he's coming at it from a aristocratic standpoint, which is, in many ways, like that whole whole thing about odium. It just reminds me of a kind of makes me think he's like advocating a sort of socialism for the rich, which I mean, it's aristocracy. That is literally aristocracy. Oh, definitely. No, I mean, odium is an important concept because you see, it's a society. Why is Nietzsche a thinker of difference? This is one of the kind of ahistorical things that you would never know when you look at this question of Nietzsche and postmodernism and the notion that postmodern philosophy is obsessed with difference and multiplicity. Well, in a more grounded critique, Nietzsche is interested in difference on condition, again, going back to my, his maxim, which is, I do not preach an individual morality, but a philosophy of rank order. Well, a philosophy of rank order that affords a elite otium and creates the conditions for the pacification of the working masses is superior because it allows for difference. It is an engine of difference making. It is an engine, therefore, of culture and art. So difference has a certain material precondition which must be met, which is why also Nietzsche's commentary on property relations are so significant and why in his reading of Schopenhauer, uh, you see, because Schopenhauer was one of the first rebel academics to exist outside of the ac ac academy. 
After 1848, the short story is, is that the European bourgeois philosophers uh, lost legitimacy because the social order was in crisis and decadence. Schopenhauer decided to kind of have a hybrid. There's kind of a para-academic like us. I mean, of course, we are para-academics for different material reasons after 2008 than they are. Theirs was a conscious choice. But you see, he says Schopenhauer's ideas were afforded by his relationship to private property. And that status of private property, Nietzsche once referred to the Ubermensch as oligarchs of the spirit, is, is essential for the continuation of Nietzschean philosophy. So one could make an argument. This is why I think Nietzsche is an implicit bourgeois thinker. One could make an argument that the reign of Nietzscheanism will only come to an end upon full communism, right? Upon the masses seizing the means of production, taking on the property relation itself, for which Nietzsche wanted to leave untouched. And of course, you can have revolutions culturally until the cows come home. But for Nietzsche, the property relation must remain as such. I think that's a huge uh, problem. Right. And one of the biggest glaring things for me that really made it hard for me to ever view Nietzsche as a really thinker compatible with the left in terms of a left politics is the fact that he, while he despises Christianity, he praises Hinduism. Uh, you mentioned like it's, he, he tends to praise culture that reifies and instantiates rank and order, you know, natural hierarchy, so to speak. It's a, reminds me a lot of the proto-fascist thinker, Julius Evola, who's like this weird spiritualist who kind of advocate, I know obviously it's different, but I'm not the first to make that comparison, actually. That Julius Avola does believe in this sort of anti-capitalist, but very pro-natural hierarchy uh, yeah. type of thinking. And it's, I, I, I've sensed that in Nietzsche. Well, and part of the thing, like if we look at like contemporary right-wing Nietzscheans, like Curtis Yarvin and Bronze Age Perberg, I'll just use one little example. Did you notice their commentary on Gaza, on the annihilation of the Palestinians. Do you notice their position? Very, very Nietzschean, which is an advocacy on behalf of their followers to feel absolutely nothing for the suffering of the Palestinians as they're being genocided. And this actually refers to this notion of disposability of the failed, the degenerate, and the weak. So if you qualify there, and again, for a liberal, their qualification metric is the market and success goes back to this liberal definition of class as success, which, which totally rejected as anti-materialist, but they too have an eliminationist theory, which Nietzsche offers. It's a dark point, but it is nonetheless true, which, you know, Curtis Yarvin advocates on his Substack that, um, if you are European, white American, you must as a duty feel absolutely nothing for the bombing of the Palestinians. And I think that this actually is linked back to his Nietzscheanism and the pathos of distance and the necessity of why? Because you get caught in the mob, the herd mentality of this problem of excessive suffering. You see, that actually takes us back to the core argument that I make about Rosanthemont. Rosanthemont in my art reading is a question about the resolution of the status of extreme suffering, right? And Nietzsche 
saw what he calls the impossible class in one aphorism from gay science. He saw their impossibility, main, mainly this, this impossible class are um, kind of, you could say kind of proletariat, but also lower than proletariat, which could also include kind of rabble in a Hegelian category. Uh, the problem with them is that if socialists advocate for their suffering to have a commensurability with the suffering of all, if that universal gets connected to the body politic, uh, we have an intractable condition of decadent nihilism on our hands, precisely because Nietzsche makes many comments about how they will not be able to have the flexibility of perspective. This kind of goes back to Nietzsche's notion of perspectivism. And well, in some sense, perspectivism is precisely a reactionary doctrine at this level because those who have the capacity for a multiplicity of perspectives, well, this untermenschen, this subclass, the Gazen, the Dumpen proletariat, whatever categorize, whatever category you choose, uh, they're barred from that. They're barred from that. And they're also, most importantly, mired in an intractable envy. They don't have the flexibility to wear what Nietzsche calls the mask. They lack that flexibility. They're not, they cannot be refined and they will lose confidence if they are empowered, right? So there's a lot of work that people have done in biographies of Nietzsche where he does change his views on this class, where he starts off with this kind of aristocratic view, which is that the class is kind of by birth destined in this way. He then modifies it. This is Nietzsche. There's a lot of work on Nietzsche and Judaism, Nietzsche and the Jews, where he wants to create a kind of transversal theory of racialization, whereby this class is not determined based on birth, but is determined based on imminent competition. But this kind of goes back to Nietzsche's ambivalent relationship to capitalism itself, right? Because I think what Nietzsche was after was the sense of the determination of the failed. Because if Nietzsche says that the failed are eligible for elimination, keep in mind Nietzsche's writing before um, Galton and that whole eugenics movement, even though he does write a couple of essays about its burgeoning moment, he is seen by many scholars as a godfather of eugenics. It's also why these liberals will use and Bronze Age pervert is big on this, IQ, IQ as the metric of the division. So they're always looking for a metric to qualify the pathos of distance, to instantiate it, right? That is some insidious stuff. And I don't think we should laugh it off. Like I'm in talk conversations with a lot of Nietzschean scholars, right? And they're kind of like, yeah, Bronze Age pervert's dissertation uh, is not a big deal because he doesn't work with the sources and it's very idiosyncratic and so on. But it's like, I hate to be like alarmist, but I actually, I actually do think that is, I don't know if you've read his dissertation or whatever, but um, it's this really wild thing. Anyways, I guess what I'm trying to say, you, whenever I talk about Nietzsche, Tony, I go on these tangents because again this is the thing he gets inside of me and like I, 
I'm always sweating him out. This yeah. is the parasite thing. Like I ingest him and it's just like this, like he, 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 he does liven me up. And I mean, I think that he's had some similar effects on you apparently. Yeah. I mean, you wrote a whole book on him. Why else would you do that? And you brought out the big guns too. You've got a lot of sources. I do want to scale it back though, just real quick. Um, sure. To Nietzsche's impact on the left, because initially one thing that I was a little skeptical of is to what extent is this impact on the left really just an impact on the academic left? People who are kind of already out of touch anyway with, with most regular people. Like, I don't think most regular people are reading Deleuze and Bataille and stuff. But you, you did give these really good historical examples of various uh, political, political actors who had a sort of left Nietzscheanism that kind of had a questionable impact. But I can, one example that I think is highly relevant to listeners here, which I think can, uh, attests to your point, is the most famous left-wing YouTuber right now is ContraPoints. She's a, she actually had her, she has a PhD in philosophy and she has this video called Envy, very long. And in her video on Envy, ContraPoints kind of comes to a very, very, I don't want to use Maoist term here, but counter-revolutionary conclusion. I mean, and her conclusion, she ends up saying that all revolutions are driven by ressentiment. And because of that, you know, they're kind of, she implies that they're just destined to fail. And she kind of ends up with this very reformist stance that kind of doesn't rejects the prospect of revolution entirely. And kind of her end note actually is this neoliberal politics of the self, because her, her she ends the video saying, I'm about reiterating the idea of Amor Fati and loving life and accepting life, saying yes to life. And sure, that sounds great. I actually believe in the politics of affirmation, but I mean, with her reading of Rezantema, I think it ends up playing actually with the, the, this co-option, leftist co-option of Nietzsche ends up feeling Nietzsche's actual goals, which are anti-class emancipation. Whereas the way I would see it is, I would agree, yeah, I think resentment, you say this also in your book, that resentment, you do make this distinction between resentment and resentment, but I'll let you elaborate on that. That, well, resentments, inevitably revolutions, of course, are going to be driven by resentment. And people have rights, are, are also a right to resent the people who are screwing them over and their conditions, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's not a reason to, I mean, so what? Yeah, revolutions are driven by resentment. Yeah. And? Right. But I can see how that sort of it's like a way to shut down revolutionary politics to say, oh, you're driven by resentment. Shut down. Right. Yeah. 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 So my one of my arguments is I, I try to say that Nietzsche's concepts develop a political epistemology of what I call nominalism. Right. Which is that they are meant like the subtitle of genealogy of morals is a polemic. Right. And so what kind of polemical concepts is Nietzsche trying to put forward? And I think with Rezontimon, the one of the things, this sort of a paradoxical outcome of the deployment of the concept, which is I argue that um, what it actually functions to do in like an actual practical sense is to shut down solidarity, right? Because what, there's really two types of Rezontimon. There's Rezontimon, which is imminent to the market world, kind of like this thing we were talking about before of the liberal definition of classes, winners and losers. So there's like the, the losers sink into the intractable status of Rosanthemont. And Rosanthemont refers not merely to resentment, but it refers to confluence and overwhelm, overwhelming confluence of negative affects such that it's debilitating. Yeah. 
And it sort of therefore assigns an ontological status. And I think that ontolo ontologization of a subject mired in that form of resentment uh, has the implication that they are to be at a distance or that somehow they are essentialized as unworthy of forming solidarity. And so I have a critique, for example, of Wendy Brown, who really is a kind of contemporary left Nietzschean, Foucauldian in her work, Society Must Be Dismantled, where she kind of does the in same- neoliberalism book, in the ruins of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism book, yeah. Uh, I respect Wendy Brown a lot for many of her interventions, but I find that she and, and ContraPoints sort of participate in this liberal Nietzschean notion whereby they assign, because the other way that Rizantamar works is there's this imminent individualized form, which is false and needs to be rejected. But then there's this other form, which is you assign it to like a community, right? So like the right wing assigns it to like, in the 1990s, they had this notion of the black welfare queen, right? Like this figure who's like a subject of pure Rizantamar, just total racist falsity. But that is meant to assign it to a collective, essentialize a collective. And when you do that, you actually abandon Nietzsche's own critique of morals because you have moralized that collective as basically ontologically incapable of change and therefore incapable of solidarity. And that's like the last thing that we need on the left right now. Why? Man, I mean, we've existed at least for me, several decades on the left, trying to forge solidarities, blocks of different classes and groups for emancipation. And we have failed one time after the other. Clearly what's needed is a constant rethinking of the limits of possibility of solidarities. And so when Wendy Brown makes the argument that like this false notion of a white working class or a white generational cohort is one way and they all adhere to horizontal in one way this actually becomes a highly liberal moralistic thing which actually stops solidarity that's my main problem with horizontal is that it stops solidarity and then furthermore this is where like psychoanalysis comes into play psychoanalysis and politics because in truth we need to recognize that politics is an engine and a site for the expression of resentments and the last thing I think we want to do is to stifle people's resentments and to claim that they are somehow ineligible for remediation. Actually, I think political organization should be about like senting, like vent speaking. Like this is psychoanalysis, like the talking here. It's like speaking about it matters. Like that has a, so what does that look like at a collective level? Part of my challenge with Rosentimont discourses is that they actually shut that down. Because if you are suspected of resentment, it, what is the effect? It's the effect of fear. It's the effect of anxiety that I don't want to be associated with that. So that's the last thing that we need. It's anti-materialist. It's anti-materialist because absolutely there are a multiplicity of oppressions that need a proper venting. And when the Nietzschean philosopher decides who is and who is not of resentment, we have a certain elitist thing going on. And I mean, who, so this is, I mean, I think you catch my drift here, like, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I did feel like with beneath the critique of Nietzsche was really a critique of 
a whole lot of leftist tendencies which lead nowhere uh, <laughs> in the academic world, which, you know, this is one thing I will say where this is why I had you on. I've been wanting to bring you on the podcast. There is a constellation of a thought community forming, and it's like very loose. A lot of people that in that community disagree with each other on different things. But I would say a, a group of people who are noticing similar problems that have plagued the left. And you know what I'm talking about. I think people who've listened this far can tell what we're talking about. But we're sort of looking at that. And I, I think the the thing that this book did open my eye to more was that the role of Nietzsche in that. Because that the way I always saw it before was, I mean, I, it seemed a little bit oxymoron, the fact that people who would support things like cancel culture or, or like, you know, that, that's a term that is a lot of people mean different things. But, you know, what we mean by it is this in-group like policing between moral policing and purity politics between leftists who, who support that kind of and encourage that kind of culture. But then they claim to be Nietzscheans and that they're anti-Rizantima. And like you just said, they tend to pick and choose which Rizantima that they uh, think is legitimate and which one is not. And I think that it's, a, it's antithetical to any kind of universalist politics. And it ultimately leads to a lack of self-awareness and a disavowal of one's own impulses, which I think if one is to even be, have fidelity to Nietzsche, <laughs> to be aware of their own, the way in which well, let's they're owned by resentment. If we, if we read Nietzsche to the letter, and you see this in Deleuze's book, The Logic of Sense, Rosatimand is a kind of general condition. And if you pair that with an understanding of what Nietzsche says in Zarathustra, you see he ups the ante for becoming a member of the community. Because how does Zarathustra end? Zarathustra ends with the higher men all becoming denied achievement into the higher community, which itself stands as a kind of interesting invitation for the reader to constantly try to ascend, but never achieve. It's this kind of, uh, I don't know, you know, this, this, it's, it's, well, it's a bit sadomasochistic, but still nonetheless, what Deleuze says at the height of the Vietnam War, as he's writing the text, is like, there's society can be divided between the men of Rosantimont and those that have achieved outside of it. And Nietzsche says that, um, it's rare in Zarathus, it's rare to fully transcend the spirit of revenge inside of and so, like, I myself don't know that I agree with that prescription from the Nietzschean worldview. And I actually think that this is where we need to supplement Nietzsche with psychoanalysis. Because I think his politics override his points about the psychological here. This is where the, the political overrides the sensibility of an otherwise sound point. <laughs> Because what he's really talking about is this of, um, no, a condition which is impossible to transcend. I'm always, I'm always skeptical of this. Like, it's kind of like in psychoanalysis, this notion of like, one can never fully be cured or, well, okay, you so know, that this, go ahead. this is, I was debating on asking this question because it is big, but you just brought it up right there. So it's perfect. And it does, I think, lead to a tension between, and I'm looking at things through a political lens and a purely philosophical lens, because one thing you critique Nietzsche for is his sort of irrationalist approach to 
and of course, anyone who's read Nietzsche knows that he has this famous polemic against the will to truth, as he calls it. And he you know, dates it back to Socrates. And he has, he has skepticism to people who think that they can rationally know and uh, understand the totality of things. And he's very skeptical of Kant. Doesn't seem, I'm convinced he never read Hegel, but because there's like not a lot of robust criticisms of Hegel there. But it's another story. The thing is, though, is if one is to look at that separately, not politically, uh, look at it philosophically, I mean, I think there's some use in that. If one's thinking purely as a philosopher, as a truth seeker, one has to always doubt. No, like one always, one should always be skeptical of those who, uh, you know, when one kind of forecloses for it to be Hegelians here, if one tries to pretend to ignore contradiction or obfuscate contradiction, we're in the realm of ideology, right? And that kind of skepticism can help us from getting caught up in that. But of course, that whole system of thinking, that anti, like anti-totality thinking, right? I guess for the label it, is bad politically because we need master signifiers to build solidarity, to unify movements. And this is kind of brings, this is a, I think, a tension I struggle with, which is where, let's not get into it, but why I think people should read Sorel. That's another story. But I mean, because you're saying that that type of Nietzschean skepticism of no, being able to like fully grasp things, you're skeptical of that. But I mean, I can see why that politically that's true. But if we're to be true philosophers here, right? Is there not some use in that, in always being skeptical and always kind of be doubting the ability to know the full thing <laughs> the, and the, setting the limits of reason and all that? Because isn't that also what, I mean, Devin actually brought this up, that Nietzsche's thinking with regard to this very much inspired Adorno's, Horkheimer's dialectic of the Enlightenment, which is kind of also brings up a whole skepticism of the Enlightenment and the will to mastery and know and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were just, that's a, it's a good point. And I would say as polemical devices, the Nietzschean arsenal of concepts have a stake on like shared political truth and the knowability of social antagonisms. And I think within that domain, the rationalist enlightenment tradition that Nietzsche tries to shut down, to obliterate, uh, is precisely what must remain like our point of steadfast connection to. Nietzsche as a psychologist, Nietzsche as a kind of early proto-psychoanalytic thinker, I think offers a different set of insights, like such as the will to power, that I think can be appropriated in interesting ways where he makes these, like this, this young Nietzsche scholar, Matthew Dill, like so wonderful distinction in Nietzsche's concept of will to power between an instrumentalized and a structural conception, where the instrumentalized conception of will to power is this drive just for power qua power. And Nietzsche frowned upon this, whereas what Dill calls the structural relationship to will to power is one which is interested in harnessing a transition from power to force and harnessing force as a superabundance of affect and life and so on. I think in this way, Nietzsche tries to create a naturalism based on a theory of the subject qua physiology. And you really get this in Safranov's new book, which I, which was his dissertation. I recommend everybody read it called Nietzsche's political economy, where Safranov says, look, 
greater than national, class, religious, ethnic, whatever, racial identity, the connection to rank. Nietzsche argued that slave morality was insidious because it prevented a true physiological uh, ranking. This is part of the reason why a lot of Nietzscheans are obsessed with things like IQ and they have weird biological determinisms. Uh, and I actually think that like, that is a potent set of insights for that need to be handled very carefully. Otherwise, like when that, those insights are meshed into Marxological conceptions of praxis, which is about what? which is about thesis 11, which is about changing the material substrate of social reality, social life at a collective level, a level of consciousness. Uh, Nietzscheanism runs a risk of shutting all of that down. So there needs to be a careful um, discretion and separation there, where I, again, I think this notion of formulating a uh, this Nietzschean obsession with rank order vis-a-vis -vis physiological distinctions is not useful for politics. Like, I don't really care to define equality based on physiology. Like, I actually think that that is an intellectual arsenal that the ruling class can just use and abuse ad infinitum. It's not the basis by which we must advocate for revolution. This goes back to why Nietzsche invites a new thinking of the philosopher and of how ideas function within the class struggle, I think. So you're asking me, yeah, does Nietzsche have a point in all of this? Of course he does. But what I'm saying to you is that from a prescriptive point of view, I don't think that this is the best lens by which we should advocate for political, for the continuation of political revolutionary tradition, which we are committed to, which we are committed to resurrecting, right? Mm-hmm. So that would be my sense of it, you know, and, 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 and apropos of this notion of can collective groups transcend their resentments, the answer is yes. And I think we have empirical historical proof of that, right? Like, like, okay, in a Nietzschean language, we would say, well, the civil rights movement ran the risk of just further entrenching forms of resentment, which were not transcendable, like from civil war reconstruction to civil rights. It's kind of one pessimistic story of a decline in some sense. Why? Because it's driven by, it's driven by aspirations of equality and egalitarianism. That is all false. That's all backwards. That's like, this is not, this is not the, the case. And I think that it, when we, when we submit to a conception of history like that, we compromise our own commitments to, to emancipation. Like what we need at this moment is more optimism about material revolutionary possibility. We don't need more uh, uh, petty bourgeois skepticism. But what about pessimism, uh, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will, as Gramsci famously said, right? Because Nietzsche, in many ways, I view his use as that skepticism of the intellect. But one thing I, you just mentioned there that I heavily agreed with is that is, Lens is not use. It's not a great lens to advocate emancipatory politics, like a Nietzschean socialism, or a it's just, it's terror. It does not really unify a mass. It doesn't really. It's not optimal exactly. for a mass politics. I would agree, and that's an instrument. That is an instrumentalist argument, but I think it is a valid one. However, I mean, 
can one still like yeah grapple with those ideas well, we can, and we could sublate. we could easily we could easily imagine work this is why my reading method is trying to invite new work to be done with this right. perspective bringing why not analyze historically how egalitarian movements um enhance the physiological outcome of the subordinated and the oppressed of course they do this is something that Alain Badiou speaks of and Ernst Bloch speak of all the time in their analysis of revolutionary history. I mean, what does a revolution achieve at the level of affect for the people? Like Bloch talks about how it opens up a consciousness of the future, which is fundamentally optimistic, which opens up a possibility of a horizon of solidarity, which is foreclosed in bourgeois seriality and bourgeois normal relations and so on that's something that nietzsche would not only deny but like politically seek to suppress so in my vision it goes back to revolution in some ways and the kind of but yes but nonetheless so i insist tony that that appropriations of nietzsche have to happen because he has to be confronted right okay yeah no i think that's a good point of clarification because the last thing I do want to say in this kind of may help reiterate your point I guess but the one thing I, I'm worried I was worried about especially with this type of approach when it comes to like is this thinker lead to bad does they do they lead to bad politics is that it can lead to a dismissal of their whole oeuvre which which is obviously not what you're doing with Nietzsche but sometimes people do that right a lot of thinkers do that with pro-structuralist thinkers and it allow it allows us to miss a lot of crucial points that are, can be very useful elements of self-criticism for the left. Like a good example is the way Sorel is discussed on the left is George Sorel, I think, was hitting on something that is totally missed by the Marxist tradition at his time. When it comes to the what it what it really galvanizes mass politics, I think he had a big point with the with with grand myths and narratives that is often lost. And uh, that needs to be studied, but because he had this influence, right? He was an anarchist thinker, of course, but he gets utilized by Mussolini. And uh, because of that, you know, he has this association with fascism that people will use to disregard him entirely. And I think Nietzsche has a, you know, a, lo a lot of useful concepts, which we, we discuss mostly. And the one other idea of his, which you brought up, uh, and that's why I kind of want to end on this, just because I really do not want to miss this one crucial idea of Nietzsche, and that is the will to power. Because I think that is worth discussing, like, to what degree is there merit in that idea, and should we study it? Mm -hmm. Because one thing I found interesting is the way that implicitly is shown in Max Weber's writings, a sociologist. He has this great work, Politics as a Vocation, and he starts with the presupposition that everyone is driven by power. But that that's, we shouldn't be asking, are they driven by power or are they not? Rather, you know, can this power be balanced by an ethics of responsibility and convictions, right? Mm -hmm. But he doesn't start that, oh, is there the, the Machiavellians and the, the power-hungry people and the ones who aren't? I think that's important because when we try to say, oh, we those who advocate proletarian mass communist politics are not driven by power and all too human impulses, we risk the delusion of placing ourselves in the position of like the big other where we're just like a extension of the natural laws of historical development or of the proletariat as this agent of progress. And then we can actually rationalize a lot worse acts because of that 
lack of self-awareness of those all two human impulses. And uh, I think it's, it's worth reckoning with that power as well, because and it's relevant to the cancel culture discourse, is I think a lot of the people who are driven up in promoting that culture are driven by a sense of deci deciding the fate of others. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of power in being able to eliminate someone from a platform by you know, tweeting, tweeting in a mob and stuff. So with, with that kind of, because of course Nietzsche doesn't think there's people with the will of power and those who aren't. He thinks they're all driven by the will to power. Even those who have slave morality he thinks it's a kind of will to power in a sense that it, it's, a, it's a way to bring down, uh, to delegitimize the people of the ruling class and so to speak. And he sees it as an expression. But this idea that we're all... Do, do you think that is, there is merit in that? Or do you actually just think that actually might just be an arcane idea that we should disregard? Because my position is, I think, the will to power is worth taking seriously. And I think it's missed in Marxist class politics, especially when we talk about dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, we kind of forget that we should, I don't think we should abandon such ideas, but that we can, if we forget that we're driven by all these all too human impulses, we can lead to delusions that can rationalize worse acts. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, as I mentioned before, the Nietzschean reflections on will to power present a kind of psychological and early proto-psychoanalytic set of insights, which I find quite interesting. Like, Lou Salome was one of the first, the romantic interest of Nietzsche, was one of the first Nietzscheans that was brought into Freud's inner circle. And there's some literature about how her presentations on power and so on led eventually to Freud's notion of the death drive, things of this nature. So of course, in our understanding of a philosophical understanding of subjectivity, which of course, tradition of Western Marxism takes quite seriously, I say scientific investigations into physiology should be unending and should be opened. But again, we are thinking here primarily, although not exclusively, of Nietzsche as a political epistemologist, Nietzsche as a political polemicist. And in that domain, we need to uh, supplement these vitalists. You see, the problem, Tony, is when we exclusively put vitalism in the driver's seat. This goes back, you mentioned Sorel. Well, Sorel was influential on Mussolini because Sorel abandoned the Enlightenment rationalist tradition of socialism in favor of this highly chaotic, anarchistic, vitalist tradition, which completely reformed and changed his agenda of what he was trying to achieve politically in the notion of the development of the mass strike as mythical construct, such that basically what happened was a kind of cultural revolutionary modality of an anti-elitism. So it's kind of like a souped up post-Marxism um, culture war strategy that was interested in using violence as a point almost to wake people from their slumber and to not, importantly, this is the big thing with Sorel that Sternhell points out, not revolutionize the mode of production. Sorel adopts vitalism at the point at which he says uh, revolutionizing capitalism is impossible. So Sorel has an embedded reactionary agenda that I think we must avoid. So these insights need to be supplemented, in my opinion. He does not have those positions by the time he writes 
reflections on violence though which is that work that is comes up with this idea of the the myth and all of that i just want to say because like he does have like uh, his politics are all over the place and he shifts in these different directions but in reflections on violence he's like advocating a kind of almost like he's like supporting lenin he's saying he advocates for like a class consciousness and a and a he's a syndicalist at this time but he just doesn't think sure. class consciousness is what gets people to revolt like and that's, that's why right. he he appeals to like the history of Christianity a lot, like a martyrdom and yeah. these grand sacrifice and and stuff like that. And I think I still think that there's something there that is uh, yeah. It, 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 when it changes your praxis in terms of your strategy, which is what it did, mm-hmm. but that become the problem. And I mean, you know, you should check out Sternhell's Birth of Fascist Ideology, which takes on Sorel, Sorel's Nietzscheanism directly. But to return to your point, I think that um, when we incorporate insights of the will to power at the level of political epistemology and understanding of social antagonisms and so on, we run a risk of the same risk I think that a lot of like Foucauldian reflections on power fall sway to, which is this idea that capitalism in all of its forms, capitalist socialism in all of its forms, kind of presents a field of impersonal reactionary forces that are almost impossible to transcend. And that ends up producing a kind of impotent praxis, an impotent form of politics. And I think that itself also lends itself to a particular abandonment of working class emancipation. And I think therefore you would have to supplement that with a commitment to this grand Hegelian conception of dialectics and of, of this more rationalist oriented form of thinking social conflicts, because ultimately, um, we are political animals as Aristotle says. And I think that part of our objective as revolutionaries is to appeal to our rational faculties, to appeal to our collective interests. You see in the vitalist form. This notion of a program is off. Part of the challenge I have with Deleuze and Foucault is, you know, one of their main things to the left is like, forget parties, forget programs, right? Forget communication, right? No, like that's not going to work. Like it hasn't worked. These, these thinkers have been the dominant thinkers on the left, right? Like forget representation completely. And like, we can't do that. Like there needs to be a more mediated form of thinking power. And there needs to be an acknowledgement that power itself, because one of the other dangers here is this notion of if power is ubiquitous, power is always pathological. And I don't think that's true. Or this Nietzschean elitist notion that if power is ubiquitous, only there's this esoteric strategy to escape from that. And only a few can escape. That reinforces its own ascetic elitism. I'm not interested in that. I'm more interested in um, creating a program, creating a, I'm okay with centralized power, right? Within limits. I'm okay with conceiving of liberation. It wasn't wasn't obvious in my my videos and stances. I very much am too, but that's another story. But you see the Nietzschean, the, the, the Nietzschean tradition casts a huge shadow on centralized forms of power, Mm -hmm. right? And this is why the Nietzschean tradition 
always, if it is Nietzschean socialist, will always tend to be libertarian hyphen socialist. Yeah. I'm sorry to say, but libertarian socialism is exactly the mantra of the boomer post 68 left. And it has not delivered uh, the kind of transformation that I think we need. Well, maybe it has transformed a bit. It's helped transform capitalism. I think so. I think so. That goes back to this Uh, this new spirit, the new spirit spirit of capitalism. Totally. So, so I think you catch where I'm coming, which is these Mm. insights need to be handled carefully at the level of political epistemology and that, um, Otherwise, psychoanalysis can answer some of these things more adequately. I think even Nietzsche, because again, sometimes Nietzsche's political agenda almost overwhelms his otherwise original insights. So yeah, that's what I would say to that. Yeah, that was excellent. This was a, this was a great conversation. I obviously can't take any more of your time. Sure. We've discussed a whole lot here. And I think listeners who've made it this far uh, would get a lot of value from this. And definitely check out Daniel Tutt's book that's coming out in January, How to Read Like a Parasite. It'll be in audiobook form, correct? As well. So those who... It will. So you have no excuses. You gotta, you can listen to it on your way to work. You know, like you listen to this podcast, which you should give a five-star rating if you enjoyed. And become a patron if you want to get extra content and support the show. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed. My only hope is that when enough people become pessimist, then, out of despair, somebody maybe does something. But you know why I also like to be a pessimist? Because it's the only way to have a nice life. If you're an optimist, then always bad things happen and you are always uh, disappointed. When you are a pessimist, then you look around, okay, there are bad, but from time to time something nice happens and you are, as a pessimist, you are a little bit glad all the time, no? You are listening to One Dime Radio. Become a patron at patreon.com slash one dime to support the show and get access to extra content.